Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. It's September 2020, and thanks to COVID-19, we join each other via Zoom to bring you the second in a two-part socially distant anniversary special. September marks the fourth anniversary of this podcast, and in honor of that occasion, I am gifting each of my co-hosts an old-time radio show carefully chosen to match at least one aspect of their unique taste in audio entertainment. Today, I present Tim with an episode of Vanishing Point entitled Death and the Compass. Vanishing Point was the follow-up to CBC Radio's successful horror anthology series, Nightfall. Unlike its predecessor, Vanishing Point featured stories from a wide array of genres, including psychological thrillers, science fiction, horror, and even comedy. Vanishing Point debuted in Canada October 5th, 1984, and ran for two years before taking a hiatus during the summer of 1986. Vanishing Point returned in the fall with a new format. Instead of an anthology of standalone series, the program became an umbrella title for multi-part or thematically linked stories. This version of Vanishing Point ran through January 1993. Death in the Compass is based on a 1942 short story by Argentine writer and poet Jorge Luis Borges. Like Vanishing Point, Borges's writing often defies categorization. In fact, his stories are frequently referred to as fictions because they read more like fictionalized essays than traditional stories, blurring fact and fiction in an attempt to illustrate a particular philosophical concept or argument. On the surface, Death in the Compass is a more conventional short story, utilizing familiar narrative tropes from the detective genre. Borges was a fan of detective fiction, particularly G.K. Chesterton's idiosyncratic Father Brown mysteries. Like Chesterton, Borges saw the detective story as a lens through which he could examine his own thematic and philosophical obsessions, including, but not limited to, the labyrinthine nature of reality and the ironic hubris of those who claim to understand said labyrinthine nature of reality. So what are we waiting for? Let's listen to my present, Death and the Compass from Vanishing Point, first aired October 26th, 1984. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music and listen to the voices. Buenos Aires, the city on the motionless river. A cosmopolitan city. A city of intrigue and tonight of murder. And where? Will the murderer strike next? Inspector Eric Lumrod thinks he has divined a pattern. A pattern which will lead him to a quarter of the city not on any map, nor corresponding to any point on the compass. A pattern which will lead him through the vanishing point. Who's that? 
Room service, sorry. I'll do next door first. Oh. <sighs> Room service. Room service. <sighs> Anybody in the bathroom? I think we're finished with the bathroom, Inspector. All right. Do this room now. Uh, Inspector, uh, Lundrot is here. Lundrot. Hello, Merrick. <coughs> Who's the gentleman with the knife? Okay, boys. Cover him up. His name is Marcel Yarmolinsky. Rabbi Marcel Yarmolinsky. He was here oh. for some kind of convention. For the Third Talmudic Congress. Who are you? I'm Schultz. Yazala Schultz. I'm with the Yiddish Zeitung. Rabbi Yamalinsky was a delegate from Podolsk. Mm -hmm. I had an interview with him today. Well, he won't be doing much talking now, so you might as well leave. Who found him? The maid. When she came in to make up the room, he was stabbed through the heart. Ah, oh, very classic. The silver blade did cleave my heart. The silver tongue cried out in pain. <clears throat> did anyone hear anything? Well, the Tetrarch of Galilee has a suite on the other side of the corridor. His chauffeur is in the room next door, but he says he didn't hear a thing. The Tetrarch of Galilee? Hmm, I didn't know such a thing existed. It does, and it is rich. It owns the finest sapphires in the world. Our man must have tried to steal them. Broke into this room by mistake, woke Yarmolinsky, and had to kill him. Murder by mishap. Well, it's possible, but not very interesting. Uh, You'll say that reality is under no obligation to be interesting, maybe. Maybe reality can disregard that obligation. Lund. But in my modest opinion, theories may not. What is your theory, Lundroth? Well, Mayrink, here's a dead rabbi. I'd much prefer a rabbinical explanation. I'm not much interested in rabbinical explanations. I'm interested in getting the man who killed this unknown party. Uh, not so unknown. All those books there on the table. Yarmolinsky's complete works. A vindication of the Kabbalah. Biography of the Baal Shem Tov. Founder of the Hasidic movement. Take those books away and study them, if you like, Lundroth. I can't waste time on a lot of Jewish superstitions. Inspector? What now? This sheet was in the rabbi's typewriter. Oh, you want to read it, Lundroth? Yes, let me see. The first letter of the name has been uttered. And what in God's name is that supposed to mean? Good evening, Beth. Dinner won't be a moment. Aha. Yes, sir. So, your sister's been to see you. Hmm? My sister? Soup. I smell soup, my dear. Soup means you had no time to cook the roast you promised and decided to heat the soup instead. Now, why would you not have time? Today is not washing day. That was yesterday, I know, because the sheets were changed. So, what could make our splendid Beth change her plans? A visitor, of course. A visitor who talks quite a lot and... Aha! Confirmation, an umbrella. A lady's umbrella. Obviously, your sister's. And to forget it, equally obviously, she must have been here. Quad erat demonstrandum. I saved the roast till Sunday because you said Inspector Merink would be coming to dinner. 
I reheated the soup because there's no point in throwing good food away. That's not my sister's umbrella. It's my old one, and it's on its way to the church bazaar. Bertie, you disappoint me. You always look at things in the simplest possible way. It's only a mask, the simple side of things. You should look behind the mask, Beth, behind the mask. You want a glass of milk with your soup? No, thanks. Beautiful soup, so rich and green, waiting on a hot tureen. Shall I put your parcel on the desk? Parcel? Oh, Yarmolinsky's books. No, I'll look at them here. More books? You get them covered in soup. Men's sauna in sano, Beth. Keep your mind active while you eat. Nourish the spirit while you feed the flesh. Beth, do you ever think about the true name of God? I didn't even know he had one. Well, for the Jews, God has a secret name. A terrible name that cannot be uttered. And some believe that if it were ever pronounced, it would bestow upon you infinite power and wisdom. Ah, here, listen. The ineffable, sacred, reverential, unknowable, and incommunicable name with which God is referred to some 6,000 times in the Old Testament is made up of four Hebrew letters. Yod, Heh, Vav, and Heh again. Aha. Would you like some more soup? Hmm. These four letters, called the Tetragrammaton, have a secret pronunciation. Do you realize the importance of this, Beth? I thought you were working on a murder case. I am, Beth, I am. The solution lies in these four letters. I know it. All I need is God's help to find it. Nice, Watson, you found yourself, Sherlock. This is Pacific ritual, mm, yes. Anno Nafshoiktovit, Yahovit. I wish I could understand Hebrew. That's it. Now, where are you going? Out. Sometimes, even an expert needs expert advice. I see you're busy, but um, it's urgent. It's all right, it's all right, come in. It's always like this when Sarah's out. Uh, maybe you wouldn't mind holding Sholem while I try to get the bottle warmed up. Uh, sure, uh, I came to ask you a few questions. <laughs> there, there, baby. A, a question about the name of God. This heats up very quickly. Sholem hates it when his dinner's late. I want to know about the Hatsidim and... Uh... I think it's all right now. Here, try it. No, I mean, put it in his mouth. Oh, good. Now we can sit down. Schultz, do you believe that uttering the name of God is the key to the powers of the universe? Well, perhaps the most important book of Jewish mysticism is the Sefer Yetzirah. Oh, yes. Yarmolinsky translated it. I have his copy at home. The Sefer Yetzirah opens with this sentence. By means of 32 mysterious paths did yes. the Eternal engrave and establish his name and created his world. 32, eh? Exactly. The 32 paths are explained as the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, okay. together with the 10 sephirot. I see. You do? Hmm. Well, throughout the centuries, Jewish mystics have believed that because God made the world with 22 letters and 10 sephirot, 
what you would call creative writing, uh -huh. certain combinations of letters have a secret meaning. And the tetragrammaton, the combinations of letters in God's name, is the most powerful of all. Ah, and the Hasidim. The Hasidim. The, the name means pious. Oh, much of their fame to the great Baal Shem Tov, who founded the Hasidic movement in the 18th century. Yes? The Hasidim are dedicated mystics, perhaps the most earnest seekers of the name. Ah. The Goim spread rumors about bloody rituals that are supposed to be part of the search. Exactly. But, of course, very little is known of these uh, extracurricular activities. Schultz, you've been most kind, most helpful. Oh, not at all. You look after Schultz. I'll see myself out. Details of that story are to be confirmed today. A man was stabbed to death last night in the western suburbs. Early this morning, the body of Daniel Simon Azevedo was found lying on the doorstep of a hardware store with a knife still protruding from the chest. There is no indication as to the motive for this murder. Chief Detective Eric Lunrot has kindly agreed to join us today in the studio. Good morning, Mr. Lunrot. Good morning. Mr. Lunrot, it was reported that a message, a peculiar message, was found next to the body. On the wall of the hardware store, to be precise. The wall was decorated with red and yellow diamond shapes, and someone, presumably the murderer, had written on them in chalk. Are you at liberty to disclose the nature of the message, Mr. Lunrot? Well, as to the nature of the message, I'm not certain. The message itself, I can repeat. Um, <clears throat> the second letter of the name has been uttered. Aha, uh -huh. and uh, does that message convey any special meaning to you, Mr. Lunrot? Well, everything conveys a special meaning. When we fail to grasp it, it is the eyes, not the object, that is to blame. Of course. Mr. Lunrot, would you say that this was a gang murder, you know, disposing of an informer? <laughs> you journalists have a passion for the obvious. Look at the symmetry, at the pattern... Gangs are not renowned for their neatness, you know. Yes. Well, thank you, Chief Detective Lunrot. We will be back after these messages. Inspector Nairink, and a gentleman to see you, sir. Oh, Nairink. Another little murder? I'm not sure. Mr. Finnegan here has a story I think you'll find most interesting. A uh, black... Finnegan. Uh, my pleasure, Mr. Lawrence. Sit down. Akabit? Uh, well, oh, 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 I'll try anything once. Uh, I thank you kindly, sir. Indeed, I will. Thank you, Beth. Yesterday, February the 3rd, I got a call in the office. Oh, thanks. That's fine. <laughs> Someone called Ginsberg. Ginsberg or Ginsberg? Ginsberg. With an S. Anyway, he said he had some information on the double sacrifice, as he called it, of Azevedo and Yamolinsky. You traced the call? I thought it might be a practical joke, you know, with the carnival <laughs> and all that. But yes, I had it traced. It came from a sailor's tavern, hmm. Liverpool House. <laughs> There's only one phone in the house, and that's in Mr. Finnegan's office. Well, the only gentleman to use the phone yesterday... Hmm? was a Mr. Griffiths, a foreign gentleman. Griffiths, Ginsburg. Yeah, oh, he'd been in the house for uh, oh, about a week. Paid the rent in advance. Oh, nice man. Quiet, sir. What did he look like? He had a kind of 
misty gray beard, and he always wore black. Oh, he never went out. He had his meals in his room, uh, like a real gentleman. I take it your story does not end with the phone call. Oh, all right, you are, sir. <laughs> a horse-drawn carriage pulled up outside. The coachman was dressed like a bear. With a mask and everything. A bear? Well, uh, two harlequins got out, you know. In those costumes with diamond shades, red, yellow, and green. Yeah, uh, they burst into the lobby, blowing silly red hot, and they wrapped their arms around Mr. Griffiths. But he seemed to know them. But he didn't seem too pleased to see them. When did they leave? About ten minutes later. With Mr. Griffiths. Oh, and hadn't Mr. Griffiths seemed as drunk as they were, you know? <laughs> Hardly able to stand on his feet. Well, the Harlequins, they had to carry him out, didn't they? Well, I'm sure that's the last the world will see of Mr. Griffiths Ginsburg. It all smells too cozy, too much like a plant. One of the Harlequins drew a dirty picture on the wall of Liverpool House and a crazy message. You'll never guess what it said. The last letter of the name has been uttered. Exactly. Now, how did you Mary, ever... I take it you inspected the room? It's a small room. On the floor was a star-shaped bloodstain. The bed was unmade. There was a chair and a table. On the table were a pile of cigarette butts of a Hungarian brand. And a half-eaten cheese sandwich. I think it was Edam. There was a suitcase with hardly any clothes in it. And a book. A book? I thought you'd like to see it. A Greek Hebrew dictionary. Here's an underlined passage. Dies Judeorum incipit a solis. Would you mind translating that into Christian? The Jewish day begins at sundown and ends the following sundown. Very useful, Lundrod. I'll remember that for my next cross-dirt puzzle. You should not disregard every valuable clue you come across, Meyrink. And is this the most valuable clue you've picked up in this case? No, Meyrink. Far more valuable. Is one of the words Ginsburg used over the phone? Good morning, Beth. There's a big envelope for you on the table. Uh, let's see the papers first. The envelope looks important. Important things will wait. It's the trivial things that vanish into nothingness. Hmm. <laughs> Aha! An exclusive interview with our friend Red Sherlock. That murderer. Now, now, Beth, you mustn't be ungrateful. Without men like Sherlock, I'd be out of a job. The fact that he's a murderer shouldn't cloud your judgment of his character. Here we are. Oh, for goodness. He says that in his part of town, he must mean the South, this sort of crime would never take place, and he accuses Inspector Mayrink of criminal negligence. Charlock probably killed them all himself. Ah, no slander, Beth, no slander. If you're finished with breakfast, how you can eat bread and cheese in the morning, I'll never know. Thank you, Beth. Oh, let's see this important envelope. Mm, neat handwriting. Postmark, Triste Le Roi. Triste Le Roi? That's in the southern suburbs. Horrible place. Uh -huh, a map. And a note. To Eric Lundrot. Hmm, that's me. 
On the 3rd of March, there will not be a fourth crime because the Hotel de Noir... Ah, yes, the first crime is marked here on the map. The Hotel de Noir, the hardware store on the west side, and Liverpool House to the east form the perfect sides of an equilateral and mystical triangle. Hmm. It's marked in red on the map. Who signs this Euclidean note? Baruch Spinoza. Good old Jewish name. So, three equidistant points. Symmetry in space. And symmetry in time. December the 3rd, the first crime. January the 3rd, the second crime. February the 3rd, the third crime. 333. Three, three. In God's name! Careful with this! Beth, careful. I've got it! The murderer? The murderer's mine? Where's the compass I had somewhere? You go easy. Where is it? Here you are. And a ruler. Here. Good. Why can't you hunt for clues in the fresh air like an ordinary detective? All this cooped up fiddle fan. That's it! I've called Mary. Tomorrow, the murderers will be behind bars. What? We can take a rest. Eric, so they're not planning a fourth murder. But precisely because they are planning a fourth murder, we can rest easily. Eric, even when I understand you, I don't understand you. Beth, I'm going south. To Trice Leroy? Will you be home for dinner? I will, Beth. I will. Trice God, this is a miserable place. Even the birds seem to have deserted it. Music. Damn. Where now? Two doors. All these insane repetitions. One balcony reflecting another, one statue matching another statue. Music seems to come from upstairs. <laughs> Left or right? Let's turn right. Oh, this house never ends. Another empty room. No. The house is not so large. The moonlight, the sameness, the mirrors, the loneliness make it large. You're old, Eric Lord. Sherlock. You're very kind, Lonrod. You've saved me a night and a day. Sherlock. Take a seat, Mr. Detective. I'll switch on the light. Sherlock, are you in search of the name of God? Oh, no, 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 Lonrod. I'm, I'm after something much more ephemeral, more frail. I'm after Eric Lonrod. But why, Sherlock, why? Three years ago... In a gambling dive on the Rue de Toulon, you arrested my brother. My men managed to get me away, but I had a bullet inside me. I'm sorry to hear that. Nine days and nine nights I went through hell here in this 
rat-infested villa wrecked by fever. I had endless nightmares about a house where everything was double, symmetrical. The reflection of something else. I came to, to loathe my body. I came to feel that two eyes, two hands, two lungs are as monstrous as two faces. An Irishman trying to convert me to the faith of Jesus kept repeating to me the saying of the Goyim, all roads lead to Rome. At night, my fever fed on that image. I felt the world was a maze from which escape was impossible because all roads which seemed to lead north or south in fact led to Rome, which was also the cell where my brother lay dying. And also this villa of Tristelerois. Your brother was a killer. I only did my duty. During those long nights, I swore by the gods of fever and of mirrors that I would weave a maze around the man who sent my brother to prison. Well, I've woven the maze. It's pretty tight. It's made of a dead rabbi, a compass, a Jewish superstition, a dagger, and the diamond-shaped patterns of a hardware store. I admire your handicraft, but why kill a rabbi? <laughs> Poor Lomrod, you've discovered nothing ever. The first victim, the rabbi, came to me by pure chance. Chance? Well, some colleagues of mine, among them Daniel Acevedo, I planned the greatest robbery of the century, the theft of the Tetrarch Sapphires. Acevedo betrayed us, the pig. He got drunk on the money we advanced him and tried to pull the job a day earlier. But at the Hotel du Nord, he got mixed up. And around two in the morning, he blundered into Yarmolinsky's room. But what about the message? <laughs> Yarmolinsky had been unable to sleep, so he decided to do some writing. Notes or something about the true name of God. He had just typed out the words. The first letter of the name has been uttered. Azevedo warned him not to move, but the rabbi reached for the buzzer. And Azevedo killed him. Good, good. You catch on quickly, Mr. Lamarow. And how did this mistake inspire Sherlock the dandy? The minute I realized you were guessing that the Hasidim had sacrificed the rabbi, I did my best to justify that guess. Go on. Yarmolinsky died the night of December 3rd. <laughs> For the second uh, sacrifice, I chose the night of January 3rd. Mm -hmm. The rabbi had died on the north side. So for the second sacrifice, yes, I chose a spot on the west side. Azevedo was the ideal victim. He deserved death. He was too impulsive. He was a traitor. To link his corpse with the previous one, I scribbled on the diamond shape of the hardware store the second uh, message. The second letter of the name has been uttered. I hope I'm not boring you. Absolutely enthralled. Please continue. Many thanks. The third uh, sacrifice was staged on the 3rd of February. I think our friend Myring guessed it was only a plant. Griffius Ginsburg... Ginsburg. Ah, all right. Ginsburg was me. I spent an impossible week in that flea hall in the Rue de Toulon, wearing that, that false beard that was sheer torture. I'm sorry. Then, as planned, my friends came to 
kidnapped me? One of them wrote on the wall the final message. The last letter of the name has been uttered. Weather seems to be on your side. A little atmosphere. It's been trying to rain all day. I think you met my expectations. You see, I knew it would strike you that a murder in the north, another in the east, and a third in the west demanded a fourth murder in the south. The name of God, the Tetragrammaton, is made up of four letters. The diamond shapes in the hardware store and the harlequins also suggested four. Four sides, four angles, right? Right. Then, then the underlined section in the dictionary passage makes it clear that the Jews reckoned the day from sunset to sunset, meaning that the murders had taken place on the fourth of each month. Again, the number four. And then, of course, you sent me the map with the note. The last hint. I couldn't resist it. Was it too obvious? Not at all. I knew you'd realize that the triangle was really the upper part of a diamond shape that in marking those three points, whoever had drawn the lines on the map was really marking a fourth point, the lower angle of the diamond. The point, of course, was here, at Tristarwa, where death awaits me. It took a lot of work and patience. Not to mention a few lives. But it was worth it. Am I really worth it, Sherlock? Most definitely. The rain. What are you thinking, Lundrot? In our maze, there are three lines too many. I know of a Greek maze that has a single straight line. Along this line, so many thinkers have lost their way that a mere detective is sure to lose his way as well. Listen, Sherlock. When in another incarnation you hunt me down, stage or commit a murder in point A, then a second murder in point B, eight miles from A, then a third murder at point C, four miles from A and B, halfway between the two. Then, wait for me at D, two miles from A and two miles from point C. Then you can kill me at D just like you are going to kill me here, at Tristlawa. <laughs> the next time I kill you, Lonrod, I promise you that maze made of a single straight line, invisible and unending. The Compass by Jorge Luis Borges, adapted for radio by Alberto Manguel, 
featured in the cast where Eric House as Lundrot, Sandy Webster as Meyrick, Maya Ardall as Beth, Anthony Parr as Finnegan, Stephen Wimet as Schultz, Barbara Kyle as the announcer, and Paul Souls as Red Charlock. The casting consultant was Ann Weldon Tate with Catherine Kester. The recording engineer was Brian Pape with sound effects by Stephanie McKenna, and the production assistant was Peggy Esty. Original music was composed and performed by Timothy Clark. The series script editor is Sandra Rabinovich. The series theme is by John Roby. And the voice of introduction is David Calderisi. Death and the Compass was produced and directed at Studio G in Toronto by series executive producer William Lane. That was Death and the Compass from Vanishing Point here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We are celebrating our fourth anniversary, and in celebration of this anniversary of our podcast, Joshua has been giving us gifts. I got mine a couple weeks ago, an episode of The Shadow. Joshua, why did you pick this gift for Tim? The first time I heard this, I got to the end of it. I was just listening through Vanishing Point because I'd never heard anything from it. This was maybe a couple years ago, and I heard this, got all the way to the end, and my immediate response was, Tim would love this. And then I later had to go back and think why that was my instinctual response. So, so this one is maybe not going to land as on the nose as Eric's last week, because this was more of a gut instinct pick than Eric's. But it does have things that I associate with Tim's interest. Uh, we have like gematria, this Kabbalistic mysticism, the subversion of detective fiction tropes, this strange, ambiguous, yet very unambiguous ending. Um, your hero is shot dead, yet what happens next is infinitely interpretable. And this sounds like something that Tim would like to cogitate upon, or I've ruined his day. <laughs> well, before we get to Tim's reaction and find out if you were right or not, you have said in the episode last week when we teased this, you said, oh, this is possibly going to be really hard on Eric. You also sent in an email to me that said, look, this is probably not your deal. I'm really sorry. <laughs> so here's the deal about life, right? The minute we think we know something that we're like, oh, I understand this and I've got my head wrapped around this, we are proven wrong. It is one of the things I love about storytelling. I love being led down a path and I love a good twist. I like a good, oh, I didn't see that coming. And Joshua, you are about to have one of those moments. <laughs> I loved this. I enjoyed everything about this and have been very excited all day to talk about it to the point, sir, that I did something that I don't usually do. Oh, you I didn't went, read the story, did you? No, I didn't read the story. <laughs> oh, whoa, get, whoa. whoa, let's not get crazy here. We were about but, to enter the labyrinth. <laughs> but I did read about the story, and I went and did some research and got some more information because I found it just so interesting for a lot of reasons that we'll get into. You but know what you're, this means, though, right? Is Tim's going to hate it. We, we, <laughs> but, but you are right. The universe can't work out this well. <laughs> you are right, though, that on paper, this should have been something I get really mad at. But it requires you to think. And you stated two weeks ago, I don't want to have to think when I listen to something. But the thinking in this is relatively simple. It didn't hurt me to go, okay, what's going on? I don't understand. I went, oh, I think I know what's going on. And that kind of thinking's fine with me. Now, let's get to the real crux of this. Tim, 
Well, I got several preambles here. Like one of them is now another anniversary gift for you is being able to tell Joshua you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I also say that while I was listening to this, part of my mind was going, I don't think Eric's going to like this. But then maybe Eric will like it because he'll think Tim would love this. And you're a nice guy. You would listen to that thinking of like, well, I'll listen to this because Tim would like it. To get to my actual reaction, you were super on the nose. This was just note for note. Like, I love this. I love every minute of this. And I loved it when I was 100% sure, like, I'm way ahead of the story. I understand everything they're saying. I know what's going on. And loved it when I was totally wrong. I loved the way that fever dream and imagined plot and dull reality all just sort of mushed together at the end to become one story that is fascinating. And who knows uh, how that ending actually came to be, like why they're in this weird maze-like apartments, if it's just one guy shooting another or if it's part of some eternal struggle or all of that was ambiguous in a lovely way. Yes, super on the nose. Tim, you introduced me to Lovecraft. This had a Lovecraft feel to it from that story we did on here once about we didn't know the guy was in hell and he's climbing his way out and he ends up in another glass world. What was that Lovecraft story? That was The Outsider. Right. This kind of had that feel to it as well. Like we're led to believe that we're somewhere when we really might not be anywhere we can even possibly fathom or we are. But did you get that feel like this has a Lovecraft kind of feel to it? When he uses the word Euclidean, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because specifically of the, the Kabbalistic stuff, it took me mentally to other authors and other things aside from Lovecraft. But that's not because it doesn't have Lovecraftian elements. When I was thinking about it, that it took me to like Umberto Eco. You know, the, the Umberto Eco books you may have read. Yeah, and I think he was definitely influenced by Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, wow. Awesome. Your brain went to the right place. It was also just super fun to have that failed Sherlock Holmes deduction scene. Which one? <laughs> With his Danish? That lady who's Swedish made... to me, uh, but Swedish... Beth, his housekeeper. Yes. That scene is created 100% by Vanishing Point. And I think it is a brilliant scene and a great example of adaptation where if you can really dig into the original short story and really understand what the writer means, it's almost like a collaboration at that point. And uh, the short story specifically compares Lunrot to Auguste Dupin from Poe, who is the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. But the scene in here is definitely an homage to Sherlock Holmes. And, and you're talking it, about the scene with Beth uh, where he comes home and states what she's been doing that day. Is that the yeah. scene? Yeah, he, totally he, wrong. Yeah. He concludes uh, that her sister is there. That scene is not in the short story? No. Wow, because that's a brilliant scene. And it does drive home what I think is an important element to this, that you understand that this person is not a great detective let's just start there he's not because he does it a number of times right like at least two or three times in the story yeah it's both a funny little scene and a, a bit of entertainment and it really points to he would much rather have an interesting story than a true one and that he yeah, will... he chides her for telling the truth he's like you always go with the simplest thing you know look under the mask and she's just going no that's literally what happened it's not a choice on my part and it does inform you about his character is he wants to choose the most complicated or rabbinic solution <laughs> uh, to this mystery and it's really fascinating because that happens multiple times where he is 
dead wrong and the most mundane point of view is right. I mean, from the beginning, absolutely, the inspector is right. It's a murder by mishap. And from there, he begins to construct the mystery he is solving. Because Red Sherlock listens on the radio and follows his investigation and creates the mystery to match his line of investigation. So that's one of my favorite aspects of it is a detective literally both spinning and unraveling the mystery at the same time. (laughs) Um, But then there's also that great scene where he's on the radio with the journalist who suggests that the second murder is just a gang killing, like criminals killing each other. And later we find out, oh, it actually was. That second victim was uh, Sherlock's henchman. And again, her boring theory that lacked symmetry or elegance was dead right. So it's just structurally so nice. And because I do have this interest in, in Kabbalah and, and all that stuff, as soon as they got to the name of God and the first letter and all that, like it plugged into, well, I understand. I know what they're talking about. Oh, yes, the 22 letters and the 10 Sephiroth. So it was fun to have that personal investment and that feeling of, I know what's going on. And then we got to the end. I was delighted at learning Sherlock's uh, plan was improvised the exact opposite of this perfect meticulous plan uh, and is also an interest of mine. I'm like, that's so amazing. He basically just saw an opportunity and scrambled and put together what looks like on the surface, this perfect plan. Or Sherlock does not exist at all. And it's all a figment of his imagination. So it's actually himself thwarting himself. That's one. <laughs> Maybe. Well, there are different possible. aspects of one another, as Tim just illustrated. There's a lot of mirroring. You have uh, the detective who is longing for symmetry and Sherlock who is shot in the stomach and has fever dreams and begins to hate his own symmetry. And it's all this duality. Yeah. And again, this whole time, we keep getting a good idea that Lunrod is wrong. But because we love this genre and we love right. extravagant detective characters, we don't really judge him. We still secretly go, yes, but he's a detective, so he must be right. As we know, it devolves at the end into it isn't what it is. But for a while, it's just a classic detective story with this guy trying to solve this. Did it not have a Da Vinci Code kind of feel? Yeah. And sure, I'll take the emails. I'm sure everybody hates the Da Vinci Code movies and Dan <laughs> Brown. I get that. I happen to love them. And I like fictional uh, historical things. And so to that point, it was like, this is great. And as Tim said, when it wasn't that, I still went, weirdly, I should be mad at this, but I'm not. (laughs) But it is that at the same time, because it fulfills all the fun of those type of stories. But ironically, as Tim points out, Sherlock's improvised labyrinth is still a labyrinth. Also, any story that includes a bear driving up in a cab and two Harlequins getting out and abducting somebody. (laughs) I had to go back and say, did I hear that right? (laughs) Because that's the moment it starts to unravel. And it's on one word. Oh, a a stagecoach pulled up driven by a bear. And your whole brain goes, wait, what am I listening to? What is happening? And then the music swells and all the chaos. And I go back and I go, did I hear bear? And I go, I did. I heard bear. I love that moment that the entire thing, I believe, pivots on the word mm-hmm. bear. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> we're, now, we're now going in a different direction. And I think that's what the guy who adapted it had in mind. He omits a really critical line for understanding that from the story. And that is a offhand mention that it's carnival time. 
<laughs> Here, he replaces that, though, with Foley. When the inspector shows up at Lunrod's door with Finnegan from the tavern, they open the door and there's all this parade sound of people screaming and yelling. And so instead of saying it, he just puts carnival sounds in his background, which right. I would not have caught that if I hadn't read the short story. And because right, right. this is so carefully constructed, I think that was a choice on his part, as Eric described that moment of surrealness. Because the first time I heard it, I hadn't read the story, and I went back and went, bear? Yeah. And the Harlequin scream like a costume ball or something like that. So I understood it at that moment not to be a literal bear driving this, but that it was people in some sort of costume I think they ball, did clarify did... he was a guy in a costume. Yeah. Why are you ruining this? But it still comes out of nowhere. They seem like Batman villains at that point. Yeah. Right? You know, it was an actual bear. So shut (laughs) up and let me have it. It felt to me like the watchmen of detective fiction, as in, what if literary detectives were in the real world? They would be wrong all the time. Their ideas would be far too extravagant and intricate, and everyone would respond with, huh. (laughs) (laughs) and it would ultimately get them killed just like in Watchmen right there's the story of the guy with the cape who foils a robbery and it gets caught in the revolving door of the bank and the robbers just shoot him that's Dollar Bill (laughs) this strikes me as that kind of story (laughs) I did not make that connection but uh what you said is 100% true while I was listening to it it got me so into that Kabbalistic thing that when you're making the distinction between Ginsburg or Ginsburg, yeah. I was trying to think like, well, if it's Samic, I think it's the right letter, or Zadi from the Hebrew letters. Like, what's the difference in significance between those two different letters? Which, it means nothing. It okay. means- the fact that that is a red herring, and we're being led to believe this is important. Check this out, gentlemen, in my little research. Red Sherlock. Sherlock is German for scarlet. He's the, red scarlet. <laughs> yeah, it's red, red. Uh, our main guy's name, his last name again. Lunarot. Rot is red in German. The red keeps coming up, and the reason it does, the color all the time in the names and everything, there's other examples, is they are references to red herrings. That makes sense. That's, wow. Yeah. So the Eric, whole, you've unlocked this for me. So the whole thing, he's telling you, everything's a red herring. It's about nothing. And you should know that because I'm telling you that there's red herrings everywhere. So I then went and looked up the nine days and nine nights that they emphasized that he was in this fever dream. And so I just started looking up different significances of, of nine. And then in that moment, I also realized part of the magic of this story is that it transforms you as the reader into loon rot you begin to go down this maze with him and you start thinking there are things you should find out. Um, And you do find things out and they are cool. Uh, The word truth in Hebrew adds up to nine, but there are tons of other things that I could randomly make fit. That was just my favorite. And that's when I went, I am this guy right now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just looking for the funnest thing under the mask. (laughs) You just hit on something that I walked away with and that is how much this relates to things that are going on in our world today, and especially around me personally, but all of us. And that is this idea that he over-intellectualizes everything. He's tilting at windmills, right? This guy is creating things that don't exist to make them more interesting. And it's the idea that we can take thoughts and concepts and ideas and connect them easily. We can make things connect to each other 
really, really easily. And therefore, we end up with what we call conspiracy theories. They're really easy to do. They're really simple to connect any dot to any dot and then come up with this idea that this is what is actually going on. And I was really taken by this idea of how easy it is to take a thing and fit it into another thing and connect them together. It's appealing to engage and it's tempting to engage in far-fetched theories instead of to accept that some things are just random and meaningless. But there's also an element to this story where the belief in it makes it a reality because Lunarot believes right. builds the labyrinth he saw. You started to write things in your analysis. You know, you start to make connections. We, the three of us frequently make connections that may or may not be author's intent. When he walks into that room and says, this is what's going on, we immediately go, oh, brilliant detective. Here we go. Sherlock stuff. And when she counters everything, how quickly you go, oh, did I get sucked in? I chose to believe that information on the surface, but look at the other side of that. It made me realize how careful we have to be when we're presented with information that looks, it's really, yeah. yeah, it really. But did you think, I wonder why his housekeeper is lying to him about her sister? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where you get in trouble when you start buying <laughs> the conspiracy theories because you just keep going, well, then everybody's lying. Everybody's lying to me. Then you're down a terrible, really alone rabbit hole. So speaking of rabbit holes, I don't want us to run out of time before we talk about the very end, the cryptic yes. instructions for the next labyrinth. I love that. The one-line labyrinth, the Zeno's paradox. I had never thought of that in terms of being a labyrinth before, but it was, it may have been one of those things where the glamour of it entranced me more than like the actual substance of like, I don't know if that's really cool or not, but I really liked it. I think there's substance there. I don't think we know what exactly the substance is, uh, but what I love about it is that it seems to be open-ended to many interpretations of it. And I think the adapter, I'm sorry, I didn't include his name and I'm forgetting it now, but he included one interpretation in the closing announcements when the guy comes in and says, oh, next time will Lunrot be waiting in the center of the maze? Because I did the nerdy thing and wrote out the line with the eight miles and um, mm -hmm. because it's, you know, it's paradox, but it goes backwards. So yeah. that if he meets Lunarot at D, he's meeting Lunarot before he has performed the murders on B and C. So there seems to be a suggestion there of possibly a trap. But also, according to that paradox, movement is impossible. You can't leave point A, let alone get to point B, because everything is halved exponentially until there's uh, no that, beginning. That's St. Thomas Aquinas's theory of motion, is it not? That's who I always attributed that, the motion doesn't exist theory. There's been a number of them, but he says Greeks, so I think he is specifically okay. referring to, is it Zeno? That sounds like yes. a warrior princess's name, but... <laughs> Maybe. But also there's this idea of just exhaustion, right? Like if you're going to kill me next time, let's just make it a straight line. There's almost a surrender to it. Um, <laughs> there's also, to me, this idea that uh, he says to Beth, you never look under the mask, that the labyrinth is just a mask on the straight line. Yeah, that I was thinking that he was to the very end, to his very death, going to promote this idea of, I live in a more interesting world. The story is more interesting than the facts. Uh, and he's going to keep pushing that. And that Sherlock says, I'll go along with it. I mean, if that's true, 
I'll see you there. For right now, I'm shooting you. <laughs> yes, I think that's a great interpretation, too. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> sure, I'll meet you on your straight line of death. Let me ask you guys this, and I've said this before in this podcast. One of the reasons the ABC after school specials or Pulp Fiction all made me mad is because they would end before telling you something that you got invested in. You know, the after school specials say, you know, here's the conflict and no resolution. They say, well, what would you do? And I said, no, you tell me. <laughs> I'm watching your TV show. You tell me. But then in Pulp Fiction, it's what's in the briefcase. And I've made this joke before, but you never told me what's in the briefcase. I'm very mad at you, Pulp Fiction. In this case, we have that same dilemma that doesn't bother me. And that is, is he dreaming? Is he crazy? What is going on? So let me ask you, because I think we've agreed that it's open-ended to interpretation. What do you guys think is going on? I think the story is teaching us how to interpret it, that it is the truth is the most dull version of the facts, that this old enemy of his tricked him into coming into uh, his apartment and then shot him. And the truth of that the truth is often the most dull version of the facts is what the detective is constantly struggling against and struggled against till the very end. And his version is far more interesting, but not the truth, air quotes, as much as you can say what the truth is in a short story. I agree with Tim. But what I think is open to interpretation is the detective's fantasies. Like, what does he mean by that? And what is his intention? And I think it's open to interpretation because that's, what the detective character wants. He wants to provide an intricate puzzle for us to solve and be the next loon rot and sit here and go to the internet <laughs> and figure it out after he's gone. I mean, they, they both speak of it so blasé about, yes, next time, that there's a part of me that goes, okay, maybe you could interpret it as an eternal struggle only because Sherlock in that moment agrees to it. However, I do think Tim's interpretation of yeah, sure, whatever, I'm shooting you now, is totally legit too. But I think right up to that moment is 100% absolute reality that Loon Rot is fighting against and reinterpreting. Here's what I came away with, that none of this is real, that this is a man that is not a detective, that is just somebody that makes up this fantasy world for himself of being a detective by taking information out of the newspaper and creating these stories. And therefore the name Sherlock is close to Sherlock and interestingly becomes his nemesis. He fantasizes about battling wits against Sherlock, his Moriarty. That's where I kind of landed with. It. I think that's legit. The story is equally an invitation to fantasy as well as pragmatism. You know, it's like this, <laughs> it voices both of those. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also shows that both are appealing. Yeah, I mean, I think he's super appealing. The actor's great, very much channeling Sherlock Holmes. But all the side characters who uh, take the wind out of him are also really appealing. Beth is really appealing. She has really funny lines when he says, I'll need God's help. And she goes, that's quite a Watson you found for your Sherlock. Right. <laughs> There's a moment where I was led to believe my theory of that this is a man probably in his apartment uh, being taken <laughs> care of having these fantasies. When we're hearing the radio station and the reporter, everything she says is about reporting the crime. The minute that we're pulled into the radio station is the first time she says, and we're here with so-and-so. For me, that was this moment of he's listening to the radio and then fantasizes that he is being interviewed by this woman. So 
were outside listening to the radio station get pulled into his fantasy at that point. And therefore, that's when the, the Foley changed and everything changed to take us there. Yeah, I also think the adaptation particularly gives more of those cues than the short story. Yeah. The music becomes far more surreal during certain parts of the story. Once he figures out that the fourth spot on the map and that it is not an equilateral triangle, that it is a diamond, he is almost transported instantaneously to the location. Yep. And the sound gets distorted and the music does. So I don't think you're far off. In your interpretation, I don't necessarily interpret it that way, but I, I think there might be definitely some adapter interpretations leaning that way. Yeah. Another interesting aspect to this is the choice to give everybody different accents. And that I think- <laughs> And could none of them much. from Buenos Aires. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But one of the things I've read repeatedly about Borges is that he put South American literature on the map but he was very unconcerned about uh, local things. He was very universal. And so I interpreted that because it's so weird. Everyone has a different accent. That was an intentional adaptation to, to express that this was to be applied universally to the human condition. I just I remembered, and I have to share, of all my favorite things among this, one of my favoritest is when he's talking to Schultz and he's holding the baby <laughs> and he hands him the bottle and says, test it. No, give it to the baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. It's another scene that's entirely created for this adaptation. Uh, oh. Really clever. The short story is about six pages long. It's very short and it's all told in summary and you're all in Lunrot's head other than the crime scene and the final scene. So it makes sense from an adaptation point of view in audio to try to turn these into scenes so it's just not narration. But I think it's so spot on in what scenes he decides to make and the tone matches seamlessly. You know, I'll start in our voting based on what you just said. Uh, I find it to be a classic, not only the story itself, but bravo to Vanishing Point for a really well-produced and well-done piece of radio drama. And for the story itself, the fact that we have talked this long and have found this many things that are fascinating to us about this story and about the presentation of this story says it all. I would like to actually talk for another two hours about this. So that is telling when I want to analyze things, that's saying a lot. So classic. Yeah, I think the same thing. I think this is a classic. It is my favorite vanishing point I've heard. And that's saying a lot because there are some really good episodes of Vanishing Point, but this is definitely my favorite. And I think it's a classic above and beyond the short story. Uh, it gets a head start because it's adapting such an amazing short story, but there is such savvy adaptation going on in this that's specific for the audio medium. The musical changes, there's this really breezy organ sort of, I'm solving mystery fun music at some points, <laughs> and then it slows down into this... <laughs> calliope scary organ music and sometimes it's just like a keyboard heartbeat going in the background it's just an excellent radio production above and beyond the source material i love this uh, i agree with that it's a classic it's also a lot of times i suspect when we talk about the more modern radio productions we talk about them in a little bit on a curve of there was this classic era of radio and then things after that to one degree or another, just fail to copy. This really stands as a 
its own thing and its uh, own production skills of a modern radio story. A lot of the adaptation elements I didn't realize they had added. Learning that makes me appreciate it even more. Yeah, classic. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary, guys. And before we leave this topic, I do want to thank our mysterious listener, Jody, who scared up a really nice copy of this episode for us, which is what we included in uh, this podcast. So thank you. Where did she get it? (laughs) Jody. She had to go into a maze. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com, home of this podcast. You'll find other episodes there. Comment on episodes, send us a message if you have requests an episode you want us to listen to, link to our social media pages, chit chat with other people who listen to the podcast, be social. You can also go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. Think of your donation as just a single line that goes on forever. (laughs) (laughs) You just get lost in a maze of giving us money. But in return, you're going to get some bonus podcasts. Uh, We have uh, The Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio, which is oddball, weird radio shows. We also have Cliffhangers of Doom, which is a podcast that looks at serials. So yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff there, plus membership cards and buttons and t-shirts and all sorts of add-ons. And also in our ongoing uh, relationship with Park Square Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, where we do monthly uh, shows of recreations of old time radio shows here in 2020, we've had to adapt, of course, as we're not on stage and we have started to do a lot of original work, uh, writing original pieces, producing them. And then you can buy a ticket to hear them gather around the computer with the family, just like old times, go to parksquaretheater.org, get your ticket. We'll be there with you at the beginning to talk about it. And at the end to talk more about the pieces that we've written. Now we have some original pieces that we wrote a while ago and have done and performed on stage a number of times but this will be the first time we'll be going into studio and to record and produce them they are adaptations of frankenstein and tim tell them about your adaptation of frankenstein it is a sequel of sorts particularly if you have read the novel and know the framing sequence in the arctic it's kind of written in the style of escape uh so a little bit of adventure a little bit of life-threatening suspense and joshua Mine is written in the style of Inner Sanctum and set during World War II, and it's very big and over-the-top and lots of fun, if I do say so myself. So our adaptations of Frankenstein will be in October at parksquaretheater.org. Please get your ticket and join us online for that night of Halloween fun. All right. What is coming up next, sir? Well, guess what? We have another two-part episode coming up (gasps) a brand new structure that i just made up (laughs) it's an old time radio death match where we're going to be pitting two old time radio shows against one another now if you're a long time listener to this podcast you know that we have often visited a series called dark fantasy and we have mined dark fantasy for some of the very worst in old time radio. And don't get us wrong, we love how bad it is, but this old time radio deathmatch is going to be between two of what Tim and I consider to be the better episodes of Dark Fantasy. We are going to try to finally give Dark Fantasy the credit it deserves. And so uh, Tim will be bringing what he thinks has the most merit from Dark Fantasy, and I will be bringing an episode that I think has the most merit. Um, And we will be starting with Tim's selection, which is 
the letter from yesterday. Until then, look out! The coachman was dressed like a bear.